Welcome to First Amendment Friday on the Lars Larson Show. Thank God it's Friday! Today, Lars puts you in the driver's seat. You talk about what you want to talk about. Government is the problem. No topic is off limits. We will make America great again. Call 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-HEY-LARS to speak your mind. Now, First Amendment Friday with Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Well, the standoff between Texas and Joe Biden continues. 25 American states have lined up saying we support Texas. Joe Biden has thrown down the gauntlet. Well, he did that yesterday. And guess what happened today? We went right past the deadline. Joe Biden said, you will do this by 12 noon on Friday. And Texas said, no, no, we're not going to do that, Joe. We're going to keep putting up razor wire, concertina wire, ouchie, pokey wire, whatever you want to call it, uh, because the Babylon Bee was actually joking about how Texas has worked around the Supreme Court saying Customs and Border Protection can cut all the razor wire. And they said, well, Texas just worked on it by changing the name. But this is actually something that I'm going to talk about later on in the hour, and that is whether or not we're getting pushed to a constitutional crisis in this country where the federal government under Joe Biden refuses to do its constitutional authority. And Texas, which is doing right, is getting dragged into court in, uh, before the Supreme Court to say, no, no, you're not allowed to guard the country. Joe has decided to make the country wide open. And we'll get into the details that Homeland Security and the FBI are now saying America is very much at risk from a terrorist attack because of the millions of illegal aliens, unvetted and in most cases unidentified, who've been allowed to come into this country. But don't let that take the uh, the edge off my favorite day of the week, First Amendment Friday. If you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, you can call in right here every single day of the week at 866-HEY-LARS. And on First Amendment Fridays, the phone lines are open, and we're glad to take your calls at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you can also, if you want to interact this way, we always put up a great X poll. used to be called the Twitter poll, but now we call it the X poll. Let me tell you what today's question is, written from the news of the day. And it's kind of a fun one. It's out of Iowa, and it has nothing to do with electoral politics. Should 14-year-olds get to drive a car without an adult in order to get to a job? And you say, well, that's crazy. 14 years old, they're not old enough. Well, it's already true that if you're in the state of Iowa, you can drive to a farm job at the age of 14 and a half. Now, that's a lot earlier than most states even hand out learner's permits to drivers. But there's a bill moving in the Iowa Senate that would change the rules surrounding driver's licenses for minors to allow even younger teenagers to be able to get to work without an adult riding along. Under the current law, driving without an adult is allowed for farm work and to travel to and from school because when you're in a rural state and you've got big distances out there and you're not running school buses out that far, why not let the kids drive? And I have a feeling an awful lot of the kids in Iowa who are driving at 14 and a half probably started driving farm equipment, you know, when they were 10 or 12, which means they probably got more practical experience than an awful lot of 16 year olds who live in the city. So, I kind of like the idea. Should 14-year-olds be able to drive to work without an adult under those kinds of circumstances as outlined in Iowa? If it works in other states, too, I'd be all for it. I'd say yes. 
And you can always say, look, at 14 or 15, we're taking a little bit of a risk. You're not as mature as you will be at 16 or 18, but we'll take a risk. But if we decide you can more easily lose that license, if you decide to go out and get up to any kind of nonsense, well, there you go. So the Senate proposal will allow drivers on that license to drive to any kind of job, not just farming, and it would allow kids to get to work. The bill reduces the distance a teen can drive under that special restricted license from 50 miles down to 25 miles to a school or a job, and the driving cannot be part of the work they do. So you can't be an Uber driver, you can't be Lyft, you can't be driving for Grubhub or Uber Eats or any of those, but you can drive to get to your job. Anything that gets kids involved in the work uh, world a little bit earlier, I think it's a great idea. You can find our poll on X, at Lars Larson Show on X. You can find it on our website, too, at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I believe in. I joined years and years ago. You can join, too. Just go to AMAC.us or call 888-262-2006. AMAC's better better for you and better for america let me go to let's on a first amendment friday let's go to randy hey randy welcome to first amendment friday what's on your mind hey sir happy friday uh happy friday man we're we're, we're going to civil war you think so if you look it's back, possible if you look back at this if you look back at the civil war and see what you know happened in the civil war up to the actual firing of the first shot very similar very similar we have a rogue president that has just gone and onto his own agenda and nobody seems to be doing anything. And I'll tell you what, the people of this country, politicians can sit by the sidelines with their thumbs, would you know where people of this country, patriots are not going to let this happen. And the thing is, Randy, what what you suggested, the the answer is right there. Does the Congress have Mm -hmm. the power to stop Joe Biden from this insanity? And they do. They have the power to impeach him. And then they can put it to the Senate. And, Randy, I'm tired of hearing people say, well, the Senate has a Democrat majority, therefore they won't convict him, you know, and and remove him from office. Well, that's true unless you get the right circumstances. If you remember that Nixon was told by members of his own party, look, this this has gone too far. And, and as a result, he submitted his resignation. We could go back and debate that one or not. I don't choose to. But his own party said, this has gone too far. And at some point, the people who are Democrats serving in the Senate and the House are going to have to come to terms with the fact that everybody in the world can look at this guy and say he's not capable of doing the job, even if you think his policies are a great idea. And then when he gets into fights with states like Texas that are just trying to keep this illegal alien invasion from happening, and you've got a falling apart economy and wars and threats of wars and everything else, and then you say, at at what point do the Democrats say, you're right, he's gone too far and we'll go talk to him? Well, that's exactly my point. Where is the stopgap at? There has to be something in place in our constitutional system that says, look, if Congress can't handle this and something has gone this far awry, this has to take place. Well, the, the stop, there are a couple of, there's a stopgap in the 25th Amendment as well that says, and I, I, I'd have to go back and refresh my memory, but it requires the vice president, a majority of the president's cabinet, would have to say, we believe he's incompetent. Uh, don't, 
Don't hold me exactly to that because I don't have the 25th Amendment committed to memory, but that's the gist of it. So the founders wrote in impeachment and removal from office for a reason. They anticipated that in extreme circumstances, and as you've said, I would agree with you, these are extreme circumstances. You've got to give somebody the power, wiser heads, to step in and say this has got to stop. And then the 25th Amendment made another venue or another avenue possible to take uh, uh, take a, a failed president out of office. And the only question is, when are people going to grow a backbone and actually decide this is that time? Randy, thanks for the call. Glad to be with you on a First Amendment Friday. I'll get to more of your calls in just a moment. And i got to tell you a story about the fact that the United States actually warned Iran about an attack on Iran. And Joe Biden decided to give them a heads up. Hi. Bring it. Constantine Kissin on Hamas. For years now, many of us have been warning that the barbarians are at the gates. We were wrong. They're inside. There are positives as well. I mean, say what you want about Hamas supporters. At least they know what a woman is. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Well, we got word late today that a verdict has been reached in the defamation case by this magazine columnist, E. Jean Carroll, who claimed that Donald Trump raped her about 30 years ago in a Bergdorf Goodman store. I, I, I don't live in New York, so I can't say the name as well. Uh, she wanted 10 million bucks. They awarded her 83 million bucks. Donald Trump says the verdict is ridiculous, and I tend to agree. You know it's going to be appealed, and I have every expectation it's going to be knocked down, let's hope, to zero, because I don't think Trump defamed anybody, and I don't think Trump raped anybody either. And if you disagree with me, show me some proof somewhere. It's First Amendment Friday. Glad to get your phone calls and emails. I do want to mention this other story because this is how far we've been sold out by the President of the United States. It turns out that Iran was about to be attacked by the Houthi terrorists. So in other words, some of the very terrorist groups that have been causing so much trouble in the Middle East were about to attack a country that is the biggest single sponsor of terror. So it's, you know, remember the magazine, uh, the comic book, Spy versus Spy? We, we have a new one called Terrorist versus Terrorist. And what did the United States do? The United States warned Iran that ISIS was planning a potential terror attack inside of Iran's borders. And so we gave them a heads up to make sure they knew the attack was coming. Now, does that make any sense at all to any of you? Because it makes zero sense to me. But then again, the Biden administration makes zero sense to me as well. Let's go to uh, Logan. Hey, Logan, it's First Amendment Friday. What's on your mind? Hello, Logan. Logan. Hey, sorry about that. What's up? Um. Hey, how's it going? It's uh, it's going fine, Logan, but if you're listening to your radio, as the producer told you not to do, instead of listening to the phone, we're not going to have much of a conversation. What's on your mind right, today? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so um, I was just wondering, like, so, I, you know, I've, I've listened to your show quite a bit, kind of heard you. some of the things that you, uh, you know, think about the First Amendment, because you just, like, um, just kind of say so we can get this conversation started. I just wanted to talk about, like, the First Amendment. What do you like, want to like, talk about? You... I'm in favor of it. Are you against it or for it? 
Um, so that's where, like, I kind of have a line for it, if that makes sense. I'm kind of in the middle. Well, you're in the middle. So you think the government should sometimes be able to take away people's free speech rights, because that's the only thing the First Amendment, in terms of speech, relates to. It also relates to your right to petition your government for redress of grievances and a lot of other things. You're hefty 50 on whether the government should be able to take away people's free speech rights? Yeah, yeah, 50-50. Why? Where? Where would you like the government to take away a citizen's right to speak? So, you know, I'm thinking, like, let's say someone, like, crosses over the border and they weren't supposed to, you feel me? I think, like, they shouldn't, they shouldn't have freedom of speech. They shouldn't have any rights over in this country. I'm going to be honest. Okay, but, Logan, now you're arguing a different issue. The founders of the country okay. said anybody, hold on, anybody with feet on their soil in America has constitutional rights. You can't run for office, you can't vote, and there are a few other things you can't do, but everything else applies to you. You want to have it apply only to citizens, you need to amend the Constitution. Right now it applies to everyone. Okay, that, yeah, 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 that's true. So I guess that is kind of, I did go off a little bit there, but... So I have no idea where you're going, and if you don't go somewhere soon, I'm going to move on to somebody else, Logan. What What is it you right, want yeah, to yeah. change? One thing, okay, so one thing that I want to change, to be completely honest with you, um, I think, so, this, this law, or this, um, this right really should only apply to people who have, like, a job, you understand? So everybody who's unemployed, including the wife who stays home while her husband goes to work, or vice versa, she doesn't have any free speech. That's what you want, Logan? Are you crazy? Yeah. No, 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 I'm not crazy. It's, it's, why so should it's somebody? Like why should somebody have to have it? So, if you're not eight, if you're a kid, you have no free speech. If you're retired, and if you're retired from your job, you have no free speech. That's what you want to try and sell. Yes. Why? Why shouldn't a retired person have as much free speech as a working person? Why shouldn't a woman who stays home and makes a makes a home? and takes care of children have as much free speech as a guy who goes to a job. Why? Um, I haven't thought that one through quite yet. I'll tell you what, think on that idea some more. Come back at me. I'll take a listen if you've got a coherent thought back together. Let's go to Victor. Hey, Victor, welcome to First Amendment Friday. What's on your mind? Uh, I believe that uh, Joe Biden is a globalist, and the globalists want a uh, want to put the United States under a world government. I agree. Open borders, uh, and I think the open borders is a big part of that plan because each one of those that come in probably costs us fifty thousand dollars or more. That builds up our debt. Yep. Our debt builds up our interest. Our interest uh, builds up uh, uh, taxes. And the taxes is what creates inflation, and yep. so it, and then well, spending. all those people we can't take care of all those people. Basically. I agree with you. So, and and and, and you then, know how to fix it, Victor? Change the person in the Oval Office. Change the people in the House and the Senate. Yeah. Another thing, uh, the the big globalist plan is uh, not only Democrats. There's a lot, a lot of Republicans in on it too. Because I agree, including Nikki Haley. I think. I think so. Uh, uh, see, they have made us dependent upon China, uh, foolishly. They, they've sent our industry over there. They made it. We're dependent on China. We're well, when you say they, Victor, they didn't send the industry. 
We elected people to Congress who created agencies that wrote rules that made it hard to do business here, easier to do business there. We got to take responsibility for that. There was no... Absolutely. Yeah, because because you could have all the people in the world saying, move to China. And if America was a business-friendly place, nobody would go to China. But when you say, we're going to make it hard for you to do business in America and easier for you to do business overseas, that's where it's going to head. Let's go to uh, Matt. Hey, Matt, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. Uh, What's on your mind? Hey, Lars, I got two questions and a suggestion. Okay. Uh, my, my, my questions are, why, why is uh, Hunter Biden not in jail? The Biden or, uh, DOJ, because the DOJ is run by Merrick Garland, appointed by Joe Biden, and uh, the DO, well, I mean, DOJ he, he, he is ignored, protecting him. He ignored uh, a congressional to, to be called in front of Congress, but then you yep. got Trump's. In jail. Okay. Yeah, so you but, but, but Matt, understand how the system works. You have a Department of Justice that can either charge you or not. They can charge you with big crimes or small crimes. The DOJ has been protecting the Biden crime family for some time. Yes, sir. That, that's part of the deep why, state. Why, why is uh, Joe Biden not impeached for getting aid and comfort? Because to the Republicans enemy, don't have a backbone. Right because Republicans don't have a backbone. They don't have a backbone. You know, if the Republicans had a backbone, they'd have impeached him already. And then my suggestion is, is that we've got the National Guard who are, uh, they're supposed to, uh, for every two weeks out of the year, they're supposed to uh, serve in the the National Guard. It's usually training two weeks a year, one one weekend a month, two weeks a year. And Matt... Do you know, I made that suggestion the the first time in 1997. I said, why don't we have the the states send the National Guard down? If every National Guard unit, all of them, have to do two weeks of training every year, let's put them on the border, and what are they going to learn? They're going to learn how to set up a camp. They're going to learn how to maintain a perimeter, and they can do that. And it'll probably, I would not be surprised if before Monday, some of those 25 states that have said they side with Texas, are going to say, and we're going to send some of our National Guard units down to back up the Texas National Guard. I wouldn't be a bit surprised to hear that announced sometime this weekend because that's a direct way of sending a message. Now, the blue states like Illinois and New York and California and Oregon, Washington and the other blue states, they're not going to send any help whatsoever. They want that wide open border. And I very much appreciate your call. It's First Amendment Friday. I'm glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. The Lars Larson Show. Kids.
Ronald Reagan knew better. Do you? All of it began the first time some of you who know better and are old enough to know better let young people think that they had the right to choose the laws they would obey as long as they were doing it in the name of social protest. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show on First Amendment Friday. Your calls are welcome at 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Naysayers go to the head of the line. You can tell we've had a few of those today. And Russ writes in by email, talk at LarsLarson.com. Because I mentioned this idea in Iowa. Right now, if you're an Iowa farm kid, uh, you can drive to your farm job at the age of 14 and a half. And I said, well, I don't have a problem with trusting younger people to be able to drive a car. Right now, there are some limitations on that special farm license. Well, now, in the state legislature in Iowa, they're talking about changing it to say any kid will be able to drive up to 25 miles from home to get to a job. And so I get this note from Russ. Lars, I got a 14-year-old grandson moved to Iowa a couple of years ago, drives to school, and he drives to work most every day. He's one of the few kids that age that's probably more responsible than a lot of adults I know. He grew up on a farm running tractors and equipment since he could touch the pedals. Also raising cattle, pigs, chickens for meat and eggs. By the time he was 12, he had a bank account of about 20 grand. So I agree with you on this and I think these farm kids are usually raised with more responsibility than a lot of kids and adults in cities signed Russ Weddle. So if Russ Weddle's grandson's out there, I think it's great. And in fact, I think having kids get involved in the work world earlier on, I got involved in work very early on, uh, and I was, you know, I, I think I turned out okay. In any case, let's go to Angie. Hey, Angie, thanks for the call from Nevada. What's on your mind? Hey, Lars. I just wanted to make a comment uh, about the immigration situation in Texas. I think one of the Democrat strategies is, to get census numbers changed. That's why they're bringing them all into these cities. Hmm. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is that, do you think or do you think that, or do you feel that this is going to play out eventually leading us to martial law, especially in Texas? Um, no. Other well, I mean, my short answer is no. Uh, I don't. But but about the changing the census, Angie, we're, we're now six years from the next census. So that's, I think, the long goal. Uh, and, and you may be right, but whether they come to the cities or not, is if they're in a census tract, and census tracts are, you know, are relatively small, they're smaller in most cases than zip codes, um, it, it might change the numbers to for congressional rep- representation and that sort of thing. Uh, but ab- about the idea of, of uh, I think what they're trying to do, Angie, and I've tried to make this clear on the show, they want to change this year's election. They're not going to be content to wait till the census happens six years from now, and then the results from it two or three years after that change the size of congressional districts and the number of people who are in Congress in each state. That's that's a plan that goes a decade out. They want to change this year's election. And Arizona is a great example of that. Arizona's already said out loud in front of God and everybody, if you want to register to vote, you have to show us proof that you're a citizen. Now that you say, okay, that's good. Then the second part of that from the Arizona elections officials, formerly headed by Katie Hobbs, now the governor of the state, and she's a screaming left-wing liberal, is, but if you don't show us proof of citizenship, what they should say is if you don't show us proof of citizenship, you can't be registered. Instead, Arizona, and I think other states as well, but I know for a fact, Arizona is saying you can register to vote, 
but you can only vote in the federal elections. Well, that means you can an illegal alien could register to vote and only vote for president and U.S. Senate and House of Representatives, which is right. exactly what the Democrats want, isn't it? Yeah, and also, also too, I think that in the states, we need to enact some sort of an electoral college. I live in the state of Nevada. You can't. Angie, can I I shortchange you for a moment? Angie, can I tell you why you can't? The Electoral College is constitutional because it's in the Constitution. If you're in a state and you say, well, you've got what? Clark County is Vegas in, in your state, right? Correct. And Washoe County is Reno, right? And and Correct. all these and how many other sta- counties do you have? About thirty of them. Yeah, I, I've roughly got. Okay, and and so just to make it simple, if you had a system, you'd say, well, the the votes count for something, but then every county gets its own vote, kind of like the electoral college does with states. Well, if you did that, it would mean. With Washoe County probably has, what, half a million people in it, does it? Yeah, that sounds, that sounds about right. I've been here okay. for over 20 years. Okay, so but, but, but pick, give me a county that has not very many people in it. I don't know the counties that well. I would well. say Lyon County, okay. Douglas County. So here's what happens, Angie. Under a system where there's an electoral college-like system in a state, the vote of people in Lyon County would would count for more than the vote of people in Washoe or Clark County. Does that make sense? Do you yes, see why? Yes, it does. What's that? Yes. Yeah. So, I, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, you can't do that because under the Constitution, Angie, your vote counts for exactly the same as my vote or any other voter in America. And you say, but what about the Electoral College? The Electoral College is in the Constitution. It's the only place where the weight of your vote uh, means something different than any other voter in the state. So if you said, we're going to have a system where Clark County voters and Washoe County voters, their votes count for less towards, say, governor or state legislature, but votes of people in Lyon County count for have a greater weight. And, and you can't do that. Because under the Constitution, all of our votes have to be equal, except in the Electoral College, where Wyoming, that has, I think, still less than a million people in the entire state, but they have one member of Congress, I think they still have one, and they have two senators. Well, that's three Electoral College votes. That means those less than one million people in a state have three votes that count in the presidential election, but if you go to a state... The, that, say, has, has 10 million people in it, um, their, their electoral college votes or their voters count for, the, they're not counted as heavily because the founders of the right. country feared that if they had a system of just popular votes, you know who would have elected the president of the United States? Philadelphia and New York. And all the other yeah. colonies, all, all the other 13 states, wouldn't have had much say about it at all. Yeah. Well, I thank you for that, and I'm just going to leave with one more comment. Uh, There are states where Democrats are registering as Republics so they can vote for Nikki Haley and then registering back. I think there should be something enacted where you have to wait an election cycle before you can change your And you know who gets to decide that? Angie, I have to give credit. Because the late Rush Limbaugh, I only met him twice in my life, and I didn't, I can't claim to have known him. I thought he was a great, I thought he was a great champion for freedom. 
but he had a thing called Operation Chaos, and it was exactly that. So, Angie, I'd be a hypocrite if I said, well, that's a terrible idea if the Democrats do it, but it's a great idea if American conservatives do it. But I'm with you. If if the state of Nevada, if the legislature said, or the people, you've got initiative and referendum in your state, don't you? Mm-hmm. Put it on the ballot. Yes. Say whatever way yeah. you are registered. And, and actually, there are some states that have limitations, and I think... I think Georgia's one of them, where if you vote as a Democrat, no, it's Mississippi because it came up in a Senate race. If you vote one way in the primary, you for say as a Democrat, you have to vote as a Democrat in November. If you vote as a Republican in the primary, you have to vote in the general. And that's a simple fix. All you'd have to do is tell some state lawmaker, you know, they're going to go to Carson City and say, okay, pass a law. It says if you decide to vote as a Democrat in the primary, you have to vote as a Democrat in the general election and, and vice versa. And that's one way to fix it. And some states, I believe it's Mississippi, have actually done exactly that. Angie, thanks for the call. Back in a moment. It's First Amendment Friday. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Musk sums up America's government. And what I see all over the place is people who care about looking good while doing evil. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, I've had plenty of criticism of the so-called badly named Inflation Reduction Act uh, pushed by Joe Biden, which hasn't hasn't reduced inflation at all. If anything, it's increased inflation. But I want to be equally critical of the uh, the Republicans' idea, not necessarily conservative idea, that, hey, we're going to go out and do a study on taxes, which will probably lead to a tax increase, which a tax increases. Putting more money in the hands of government is like putting whiskey and car keys in the hands of 16-year-old boys. So, as my friend P.J. O'Rourke used to say, uh, Patrick Horan joins us now, who's a macroeconomist from the Mercatus Center. Patrick, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Having said that, are, are both sides wrong about inflation and what's causing it and how to cure it? All right. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about the latest inflation data, if that sounds good to you. Please do. Um, okay. So today we got uh, what's called PCE inflation data. That's personal consumption expenditures. It's PCE price index data. And that data actually is looking pretty good. And I'm going to get into some qualifications for this. So uh, what's called the headline index rose 0.2%, and what's called the core index rose zero, also rose 0.2%. The headline is overall inflation, and core is you strip out the volatile food and energy prices. Yep. And if you're and uh, so the month to month percentages so from year over year, headline was 2.6, and then core was 2.9, and those were both expected. So the goal, the Fed, the Federal Reserve's goal is to get down to two. So they're not there yet. Um, now there have been some signs that a lot of the really severe inflation that we've seen over the past few years, a lot of that took place in 2021 um, when the Biden administration started. 2022, 
Uh, I think there's too much aggregate demand, too much stimulus policy, both monetary and fiscal. The Federal Reserve, to its credit, um, did a pretty decent job playing catch-up last year. So I think they're actually getting inflation close to target now. I still think there are some threats, though. Um, so I actually think the Federal Reserve should try to stable what's called nominal GDP growth, so that's total spending in the economy. And that has also been slowing down a bit, but it's still a little bit high to be consistent with that 2% inflation. So, again, I think the Fed is, has been playing catch-up, and the inflation is – the picture is getting better. I think there are some threats, though, and I think a very serious medium- to long-term threat is what you were talking about, this loose fiscal policy blowing up the deficit. So the way I think about inflation is the, the Federal Reserve's job is to try to be like a thermostat and is try to keep inflation at target. So if something else affects inflation, the Fed should try to offset it. But if fiscal policy gets too out of whack, at some point – the Fed could be forced to monetize the debt, and then it's no longer in the Fed's hand, that's in Congress's hands. I gotta, here's the concern I've got, Patrick. I've been telling people, and I think my number's about right, that $100 you had three years ago at the beginning of Joe's term of office is now worth about $82. I think that's about right. Overall costs of everything. And this is where you don't take out gasoline because it's important. You don't take out groceries. You put everything in. And my dollars are worth uh, 18% less than they were three years ago. Am I about on target? Yeah, I, I don't have the exact numbers right in front of me. That that does sound right, though. No, I mean, you're right. Inflation is a cumulative phenomenon, too. So if you're above target year after year after year, that's a lot. That compounds. Well, and here's the other problem. When, when they say, well, gosh, Lars, inflation's down to 2.5%. That's great. That's near target. Except we've just added, if we've added 18%, in the economy prior to Joe, there's got to be an acronym for that, the econ- the e, uh, EPJ, uh, the economy prior to Joe, I just saw nine years of regular inflation in the last three, right? Mm-hmm. right. Okay, so the prices have gone up. If I do it another way, what cost me $100 three years ago now cost me $120. You say, Lars, now inflation's down to 2.5%. Oh, so the price is jacked up. What I bought for $100 three years ago, I'm buying for 120 now, and now it's only rising at 2.5%. Yeah, but it's already risen nine years' worth of inflation, and now you're telling me I, you know, that I should be happy because now it's only rising at 2.5%, which is still above the normal rate of inflation and hasn't made up at all for the you know, 18 or 19% rise in the last three years. People are getting hammered by this. And, and I guess yeah, we yeah. wonder if the federal government's ever going to come to terms, stop spending money, stop pushing inflation up. We're getting crushed. Yeah, yeah. I think a good analogy is, like, say you take a football team and they do very bad, like very, very bad in the first three quarters, and then the fourth quarter they start to do a little bit better. <laughs> you wouldn't say the whole, the whole game. They, they didn't do good for the whole game. So, be well, I'll tell you what, I Patrick, would... I'll, give you, I'll give you a more personal one. If my granddaughter comes home and she's healthy and then she wakes up with a fever, and I say, well, honey, her temperature's gone up, a, you know, one point. And I say, well, it's okay. And it's going up a half a point an hour. And you say, okay, now it's 105 degrees, which is life-threatening. But it's only going up about a tenth of a point an hour now. Well, you've already got the mm-hmm. worst part of the, of the increase in there. And the fact that the, the rate of increase has slowed down, you're still at 105 degrees. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Now, now, in fairness, wages also do catch up with these high prices. But you're right, though. There's been a lot of pain in the medium in the, in, over the past few years. And like, things are starting to look good now. But, yeah, we need, we need a lot of good future years to make up for all these, these past few bad years. And that's where I get well, a little bit alarmed. I think the, I think the okay. Fed has made kind of things a little bit better. Do, oh, you th- do you have a close number? I thought that wages were still la- lagging pretty seriously behind inflation right now, aren't they? I don't have the I don't have the percent number off the top of my head. I know it was looking really bad, like percent over year over year. It was really bad in 2021. Then again, following year, it's been catching up a bit. I I don't know exactly off the top of my head where it is, like what your percent increase would be versus like say the beginning of the Biden administration. So it's it's getting better, but yet there's still a lot of work to do to catch up to um, to make up for these for the bad years we saw. And I kind of wonder, will we ever catch up for that, or will we just see considerably? less uh, rapid pain coming on us because, you know, the, the person who had the $100 three years ago and is now paying 120 just to buy the same things, groceries, gas, whatever it is, three years later is saying, well, okay, my, my paycheck's gone up by 10 bucks, uh, but, but the costs have gone up by 20. When do I get to catch up the other 10? And I have a feeling that for some people, they'll say, well, given your age, you never will. You know, that could really be true, and that's why it's really important that we have a very productive economy. And I think one one silver lining to the past year is we did see a productivity boom, I think, with artificial intelligence. I really hope that continues, but you can't know that for certain. And that's why public policy should really be aimed at boosting the real economy, boosting growth so everyone can benefit. That means freer markets, getting rid of bad regulations, getting rid of bad spending, because Federal Reserve can only worry about what's called the nominal economy, like in today's dollars, like inflation rate. Real growth comes from what's called the real economy, and that's making your economy more productive. Gee, drilling for more oil, cutting regulations. Patrick, I think you just gave me the presidential recommendation, and you didn't have to say it out loud. Patrick Horn is a macroeconomist at the Mercatus Center. It's First Amendment Friday. We'll get to more of your calls. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. to health, we're all on our own. It's Friday, Friday. Friday. Yeah, it's Friday. Welcome to First Amendment Friday on the Lars Larson Show. Thank God it's Friday. Today, Lars puts you in the driver's seat. You talk about what you want to talk about. Government is the problem. No topic is off limits. We will make America great again. Call 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-HEY-LARS to speak your mind. Now, First Amendment Friday with Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a First Amendment Friday night. Glad to get to your calls, too, at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Let me come tell you what's coming up this hour, and then I'll get to some of your phone calls and your emails. The Motion Picture Academy. The ones who released the Oscars has released his 2024 Academy Award nominations. Who made the cut and who was left off the list? And we'll take a look at the politics of that as well with our friend Christian Toto a bit later on this hour. Do Americans endorse a DOJ double standard? That is harsh punishment for conservatives who break the law and a free ride for anybody on the left side. More than 200 years after its ratification, why is it so important that we defend the Second Amendment right now? 
we'll talk to a great member of Congress from the state of California. And I want you to take just a moment to cast a vote in our X poll. You're going to find the X poll where it usually is, at Lars Larson Show on X, formerly known as Twitter. Should a 14-year-old be able to get a uh, license to drive without an adult as long as he or she is driving to work? Iowa is actually considering that. They already allow 14-and-a-half-year-olds to be able to drive to farm jobs, but now they would be able to drive to any kind of job or school as long as it's within 25 miles. I think that's a great reform. In fact, it's been disturbing for me the number of young men and women who reach the age of 16 and they say, nah, I don't think I'm going to get a driver's license. I don't think it makes any sense. I think it's one of the key tools that allows you to get opportunities as a young man or a young woman. And not getting that driver's license, I can tell you on my 16th birthday, I went right down to the DMV. I'd been practicing driving on my learner's permit. And I went down and took the test. I wanted my license as fast as I could possibly get it. In fact, I don't think I knew anybody in school at the time I got my license who didn't want to get their driver's license at 16. These days, I know people who are in their late 20s, even early 30s, who've never had a driver's license. And as far as I'm concerned, having a driver's license and knowing how to drive a car, that's one of the key skills that can make you employable. So applause for the people in Iowa. I would vote yes. They should be able to do that. Today's poll on X is brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I've always believed in, so I joined a long time ago. I would never touch AARP. Instead, go to amac.us or call 888-262-2006. AMAC is better, better for you and better for America. Now, I'm going to ask for uh, the assistance of my producer, Joel because we can't let this very important anniversary pass by without taking note of it. January the 26th, 1998, and guess who it was saying this? I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody it's a lie, not a single time, never. These allegations are false. And I need to go back to work for the American people. Thank you. January 26, 1998, the horny hick from Arkansas denying what we all knew was true when he denied it. And later on that year, he finally fessed up. I think it was August of that year when he finally came out and told Americans the truth. And he got impeached for his trouble. Let's go to Dan in Nevada. Hey, Dan, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? How you doing, Lars? Thank you for taking my call. Um, you bet. I uh, wanted to comment on the uh, driver's license for the young kids. Yeah. And uh, I was one of those kids that got a license at a very early age. I lived in Montana. We were 30 miles from town. And it wasn't just for going to a job or uh, to school. It was also because of uh, for life safety, basically. We were so far out and our neighbors were miles away. Yeah. But uh, you, you had to have an ability to get from one place to another in case of emergency, in case a parent was uh, hurt severely. But I am against uh, giving that right to all kids. The reason being, I would be scared if, if uh, urban children were allowed to drive, to be quite honest with you. Times have changed. We see adults every day on their phone and weaving in and out of their lane because they're not paying attention to their driving. 
True. Those are adults. Now you put a 16-year-old in that same situation where they're even more involved with their social media, and I think you're asking for trouble. I agree that it should be allowed for urban areas, or I mean uh, suburban rural. areas, uh, yep. as long as they're, yeah, very rural areas, definitely. But maybe even some suburban areas if they're sparsely populated enough. But uh, I don't think it should be allowed for anybody in the city. They have a lot more to distract them. They've got a lot more cross-traffic to deal with. I could drive 15 miles when I was that age and not see another car. But I could back a trailer up uh, to within in, in, within an inch of a pole. You know, I was very uh, accurate with that, and that's because I drove a lot of well, farm Dan, vehicles. Well, Dan, let and, me ask uh, you something, because... Is there a, a better way than than age, especially for driving, to be able to determine if a young man or woman has the maturity it takes? Because, you know, I'm only talking about the Iowa case here where they already have 14-and-a-half-year-olds who are allowed to drive to a farm job, probably because they're driving all kinds of other vehicles as well. So if they're sensible about driving a quarter-million-dollar combine, chances are they'll be just as sensible driving a Ford F-150. But... Is there a better way? Because you know what I'd love to do, Dan? I'd love to open this up as an opportunity to say, if you can come in and convince us at 15 that you have the kind of maturity to be able to handle a driver's license, and maybe you even have some limits. The one in Iowa is proposed with some limits. You can only use the license to drive to school, drive to a farm job, or and what they're proposing now is add any other job. So if a young man or woman says to dad or mom, hey, I, I want to get this job, but it's 12 miles away, and I can't get there on my bike, so can I drive the car? That's why the Iowa legislators are doing it. And I don't, I mean, I think I've found in general that rural kids tend to be a little more common sense because their parents and their location, like you said, if you're on a farm or a ranch and you get up to something stupid, the barn catches fire, livestock die. I mean, bad things happen in the city. Kids get away with a lot because maybe that level of responsibility is not impressed on them. But is there any way that we could trust to be able to test whether a young man or woman has the maturity to be able to do it, even if they live in a city? And I mean, I'm not proposing that today, but if we did, uh, could you figure out a way to have some effective test and say, by the way, you get caught speeding you get caught you know doing other things behind the wheel you lose that license altogether until you're 16 uh, and and you may not get it back then because we're going to take it away from you is there any way to offer the opportunity for responsibility test for it and then tell them but it comes with some expectations that you will be responsible you think we could do that i, I would say i would say uh, 40 years ago that was a possibility but you look at uh, our society now we don't even get punished for stealing under $1,000, uh, brazenly going in and stealing property with your, you know, everyone able to see your face. They don't care. And we're not teaching our kids the morality that we need to, and that morality is part and parcel with responsibility. You're absolutely right. So I, I'll work on the idea some more. We'll talk movies with Christian Toto up next.
Truth be told, Lars has welcomed naysayers for 27 years, but occasionally... Who is this person who speaks to me as though I needed his advice? This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you and a real pleasure to welcome back our friend Christian Toto, the host of the Hollywood and Toto podcast. And Christian, good to have you back on. Let's talk about the Oscars. Yeah, the nominations came out earlier this week, and of course, we are all universally in mourning because Barbie didn't get 6,000 nominations. So I, <laughs> I, I, thoughts and prayers to every one of us, and of course, the, the people behind the scenes at Barbie, because it only made more than a billion dollars, and let's pass the hat, because obviously they're suffering. Uh, you know, it's a silly argument because there are snubs and there are good films that don't get acknowledged every year, and the fact that it's got eight nominations, including Best Picture, which is just a joke, really. It's not a great movie, um, but they're upset because the director, Greta Gerwig, didn't get a nomination for being a director. So, uh, No, they, they're upset because she didn't get a nomination for being a woman. Isn't that, is that, would that be an honest <laughs> way to, to state it? That, that's certainly the, uh, the, less, the, the implied story. And what I find a little bit funny in a, in a wink-wink way is that this is a movie that was blasting the patriarchy. They mentioned the patriarchy at least ten times in the movie, literally. And all of a sudden now it's, it's Ryan Gosling is up for Best Supporting <laughs> Actor, and then Margot Robbie, the star of the show, didn't get an actress nod. Gee, the, the, uh, the woke politics didn't actually turn the result they wanted to get. Gee, what a surprise. They didn't. Yeah, and you know, I will say there was a wrinkle to this because America Ferrara, who I thought turned in a pedestrian performance in one of the supporting roles, she did get a Best Supporting Actress nomination. And what's important about that is she gives a speech mid-movie, which is all about how it's impossible to be a woman. It was a feminist screed, and it stops the movie cold in all the wrong ways. But I think they gave it to her for that. So, you know, I think there was a little bit of a woke sensibility in there, but not enough to make Barbie win all the nominations. Yeah, I want to ask you a side question before we go back through the, the rest of the list. Every time I see a flawed organization, whether it's WHO, the United Nations, I mean, these are all horribly flawed institutions. My, my first thing, you know, I know for the first inclination is let's blow it off the planet. Uh, my inclination is why don't we replace it with something demonstrably superior and let good edge out bad? You know, so if you say, if the if the Oscars have become this joke, this this you know I guess venue for politics and everything else, is there anybody in the wings, you know, to use a theater expression, uh, who's mm -hmm. who's say say suggesting, let's actually have some movie awards again that actually honor good movie making? Would there be any place to any way to displace the Oscars? Boy, it's a tough question. I don't think there's any counterbalance to the Oscars at this point. Uh, maybe if it falls even further in our estimation, that could be possible. You know, one of the things, I mean, I think what you're describing might be asking for a right-leaning or at least culturally right-leaning institution. And sadly, uh, our fellow conservatives are not as engaged as they should be in the culture. And I think for that reason, we don't get alternatives in certain ways. So I think you see it here and there sporadically comedians do this uh you know some songwriters have put out some right-leaning songs but nothing with the clout and the gravitas that the oscars have had for years so that's it gets complicated i mean because i understand what you're saying that uh, i guess in my heart of hearts uh, 
I try and be honest about this and say, what if it was just down the middle and not right-leaning, not left-leaning, not a venue for what message are you pushing through and things like that, but just uh, an honor for being a great actor. And like you said, there are people who really didn't deserve to get a nomination and did, and there are people who did deserve and didn't, and that doesn't make any sense. I I almost wish there were a way of competing with, and the Golden Globes is not it, uh, but, but if there were a way of competing with the Oscars and just saying, you're a flawed institution, Academy, and, and we're going to, we're going to come up with our own awards instead that will actually be honest. Say there's a, say there is a movie with a really, you know, crazy liberal theme to it and everything else, but it has some really great acting, uh, or it has some really great directing. You say it gets the award. And, and if conservatives don't like it, say too bad. We're actually going to give out honest film awards. You know, maybe this is too far a tangent, but, I've been noticing in recent weeks there's been some really good news out of Netflix about this streaming channel is really doing well, and I know the other streamers are suffering. But what I've noticed about Netflix is they've reached out to the left, they've reached out to the middle, they've reached out to the right. They are a much more fair and, uh, and balanced platform than you'd expect, and I think they are reaping the rewards. So maybe in a way when you have a movie like Sound of Freedom, which is not really political at all, nope. but that one really cleaned up at the box office, maybe – at the marketplace, you're seeing the course correction that we're not seeing at the Oscars. What about Sterling Brown in American fiction? He was quite good. I, I like him a lot. I think he's an excellent actor. I didn't see that nomination. It's a very interesting film. It has some flaws. It's about a, a black intellectual who writes a book basically saying, you know, I hate the fact that the culture panders to black stereotypes. So he writes a stereotypical book, and then it becomes a bestseller. So it's very funny. It's very snarky. It really does take down a peg or two the woke literary world. And so the fact that people are celebrating it is a very good thing. And Brown is very good in the movie. Uh, So I don't think he was in the discussion for Best Supporting Actor. I have no problem that he's going to get that nomination. I don't know if he'll win. But, uh, yeah, I do want people to check out that film. I I wish it were a little better, but it's quite good. It's provocative. It's different. It's fresh. And for all those reasons, I'm glad it's in the conversation. And it was Robert Downey Jr. just continues to perform, doesn't he? Yeah, you know, when the, the trouble with the Oscars, and it's not the Oscars' fault, is that if they have multiple award shows prior and a particular actor wins and wins and wins, then you think, <laughs> I, think I think he or she's got a pretty good chance come Oscar night. And that's why we want the Robert Downey Jr. Listen, he's a great actor, he's a great performer, he's a big star. He has a wonderful comeback story from adversity. He fought his demons and won, thank goodness. And he was great in Oppenheimer, so I think he'll win Best Supporting Actor. I think he's going to give a barn burner of a speech because he's a bit of a character. And uh, I don't have any problem with any of that. Now, let's talk about some other movies and bad hombres. And is that one giving indie flicks a good name? It is. You know, it's funny. Two quick thoughts here. One, it's about an illegal immigrant. He takes a job. He just crossed the border. And, of course, yep. the job is wrought with tension and violence, and it, the, the story spirals from there. I don't want to give away anything because it's a good movie, and I don't want to spoil those moments. But this is a movie on a very small budget. I happened to interview the director, John Stahlberg Jr., on my podcast just today. It just got, went live a couple hours ago. Fifteen days of shooting, about $2 million budget. Wow. It doesn't look like it. It doesn't sound like it. <laughs> and it's on a perfect film, but I tell you, it caught me by surprise. It's fresh and interesting. It's a topical story. It's about the border. And it doesn't lecture. It isn't, oh, these immigrants, they're all poor souls. We must have them in the country. It's none of that. It's just, 
hey, this is a B movie. This is a genre movie with some violence and some thoughtful moments. And I just thought it was very refreshing. So it's in theaters now, but if you don't see it in a theater near you, it's also on video on demand. So I've been, I've been champing it a bit because I think the director's a good guy. The film is interesting and it's different and it's fresh and it doesn't feel like a lecture. And I love that. I'm talking, I, I don't like the lectures either. I'm talking to Christian Toto, the host of the Hollywood and Toto podcast. You know, Christian, um, you've seen self-published books before, right? I don't think I've read that many, but I'm well aware of the yeah. whole market, yes. And you can almost, I, I can spot them from a mile away. And when you pick <laughs> them up, you can always tell. And I thought if somebody could figure out, and, and this relates to the indie flicks, that if you could say, because like you said, it doesn't look like a $2 million budget. And, and, and how can they figure out, how can, uh, you know, say budding actors or producers uh, figure out a way to make a movie that doesn't look like an indie flick or a small budget movie, but it is, and it still does very well. Somebody could bottle that up. It'd be uh, well worthwhile. Thank you very much, uh, Christian. It's always a pleasure to have you on. That's Christian Toto from the Hollywood and Toto podcast. Coming up in a moment, in a world where threats to our freedoms are ever-present, the Second Amendment stands as a crucial safeguard. But why is it so vital that we actually defend it? There's a member of Congress that I want you to hear. He's coming up in a moment. He's one of the rare conservatives out of California. Daryl Issa is next on The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Calling all men and the people who love you. Listen to an interview again? Check out LarsLarson.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'll be glad to get back to your call shortly at 866-HEY-LARS. And as you know, naysayers always go first on this show, so if you call in and disagree with yours truly, we'll be glad to put you first in line. Just stick around for a few hard questions. Uh, you can also send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And I have the gr distinct uh, pleasure of welcoming you to the program, a member of Congress from the great state of California, the pride of Cleveland, Ohio, Representative Daryl Issa. Congress thanks for coming on well, Lars thanks for having me on and thanks for mentioning Cleveland because uh, you know my brothers and sisters still live there and uh, they keep wondering why did you go to the left coast and, <laughs> and you know the answer is for sunshine but uh, uh, I would just as soon uh, remind people that uh, liberty is protected by the states that disagree with California and by the way uh, speaking of Ohio I'm not sure they can rib you that much anymore, given what their governor did and what their legislature had to override. So they can't exactly say we're the uh, rock-ribbed uh, conservatives that we always were. No, it's always going to be a fight and a struggle. Uh, you know, I, I grew up, uh, quite frankly, in a union household. And, uh, uh, you know, it's uh, every day you, I, I shake my head at the union endorsements over the objection of the rank and file of some of the really bad policies of this administration. Well, God bless that notion. So you said that SHOT Show, the shooting hunting outdoor trade show uh, put on by the National Sports Shooting Foundation, is one of your favorite shows now. 
Uh, you're there and you're actually representing something, an effort of yours. You want to make sure that Americans see their Second Amendment rights protected. Would you mind telling my audience about that? Well, basically what we're seeing in California and New York and other states is selective use of the claim that they're interested in gun safety to limit what weapons can be sold, what ammunition can be sold, and so on. And so what we've done is we've come up with a series of uh, legislative initiatives, and I'll just speak to uh, uh, one of them, the uh, Police Parity Act, saying at a federal level, Police parity. If the police can have it, then it's safe enough for the public to have it. What police use weapons for is, in fact, to make the streets safe, to stop uh, bad people in the, in the perpetration of crimes. Guess what? That's what your individual Second Amendment rights include. So uh, it's an example where it will stop California from what they're doing. But we're doing it because we know that they're not interested in safety. They're just interested in banning weapons using a backdoor technique. Uh, and uh, the, then the list goes on. But uh, I don't, California is not the only bad state. New York and others are. And, you know, if, if, you, if you're an American, you're protected by the Constitution, and you have to be protected in all 50 states, the District of Columbia and the territories. And if you're not, then I'm not doing my job. Well, and to the parody idea, I mean, I'm no constitutional scholar like, say, Barack Hussein Obama was or claimed to be, but I understood that the founders said, essentially, in the Second Amendment, any weapon that is in common use and, and, and weapons that are, that are owned by government agencies, ought to be, there ought to be automatic parity under the Second, shouldn't there? Absolutely, there should be. And, and although uh, over time we have limited some things that our founding fathers would have thought would have been fine, like you know, everyone has the right to a cannon and a musket uh, because they didn't, they really weren't limiting any of the weapons. Uh, massive amounts of, of gunpowder, basically explosion, explosive of the day, uh, were hoarded by many of our founding fathers and, and coveted because that was, that was key. And today we call it ammunition. At that point, it was what created ammunition because anybody could you know could make their own shot round but if they didn't have uh you know the uh, gunpowder then they didn't have the ability to send it down range uh but this is one of the areas where we're seeing assault after assault one of the other pieces uh, called the protect act is specifically ending the idea of excise taxes on ammunition and, and firearms. Because what they're really doing is trying to tax out of affordability by Americans their ability. And it, I have no problem with the sales tax. I don't think most of your listeners do. But I have a problem with any special tax on firearms. Because, you know, a, a pound of bacon and a dozen eggs is not protected by the Constitution. But weapons are and your right to keep and bear arms are I'm, and so we, we we're we're going to continue to fight the fight and by the way november is yeah. going to make a difference about whether these bills become law well let me ask you about uh, within that package of initiatives you want to advance one of my biggest frustrations was we had donald trump staunch second amendment uh, conservative he put that on his website september of 2015 uh, long before anybody asked about it. And then he had a, a, a House of Representatives headed by Paul Ryan. I don't think much of Congressman Ryan. Uh, but and, and they had a bill for concealed carry reciprocity nationwide. And they had more sponsors than you needed votes to clear it out of the House. And it never saw the light of day. Can we fix that? 
We can, and, and that's where uh, Mike Johnson as Speaker is very powerful. I serve with him on judiciary. He's a staunch supporter of the Constitution. He's, in fact, been a, a, a lawyer in front of the Supreme Court. He is a constitutional scholar, and he totally gets it. As one of the members of the Freedom Caucus, you couldn't have a, a better ally to bring it to the floor. Uh, and we will. Uh, but, you know, we have to bring it to the floor when we have a president that will sign it. Uh, there was no veto threat uh, issued by uh, President Trump, so there was no danger of that. And, and we do. And, and look, uh, one of the challenges we have is educating people. Uh, president Trump was born and raised in New York. New York is a hostile to the Second Amendment. Yeah. But uh, Don Jr. was here at the show uh, and, and going from booth to booth. He has, fortunately, President Trump has, fortunately, a family who understands the value of the Second Amendment. And so uh, I know he hears what he needs to hear to sign what he needs to sign, but we've got to get it to his desk. Well, speaking of guns and justice and the law, can I ask you, Congressman, what should Americans make of the fact that regular Americans are beset by all kinds of attacks in this way? FFL dealers are being put out of business by Joe Biden. And meanwhile, his son, who had a major league cocaine and drug problem, seems to be able to get away with gun crimes. Is there any way we can square that up and say we can have one system of justice in America and not one, one for the elites and one for the Democrats and a whole different one for us? Well, holding Hunter Biden accountable and not having a double standard has been the work of this Congress and uh, and many of us for the entire Biden time. And we're, it's still unknown whether or not he's going to get away with special treatment. We push back on the, the sweetheart deal. Uh, we're continuing to insist that he be charged with the gun violations. You know, nothing could be more reckless than throwing a gun into a dumpster. Uh, that 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 kind of activity is the kind of activity every one of your listeners would go, yeah, you got to prosecute somebody for doing that. And oh, by the way, when you've been adjudicated not to be able to buy a weapon, to lie and buy a weapon is, again, something where... Uh, those of us who support the Second Amendment have not pushed back on sensible gun uh, laws like, quite frankly, uh, an instant background check, uh, recognition that felons, if they've been denied uh, their right to, you know, taken away for, to keep and bear arms. Okay, of course we want to enforce it. When we get something to the court, a law and, and enforcement or things like the D.C. restrictions, get them before the court, we win. So one of the things that we're all looking at is we want to get things before the court as fast as we can and start limiting uh, people and the state's ability and the District of Columbia's ability to take away people's rights uh, under the Constitution. Congressman Darrell Issa, thank you very much. I appreciate your time and we appreciate your work on Capitol Hill representing California. And it does need some straightening out. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you and have me back. Oh, we will. That's uh, Congressman Daryl Issa at SHOT Show, the shooting, hunting, outdoor trade show going on in Las Vegas. Back in just a moment, we'll get to your phone calls and emails. 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you're listening to The Lars Larson Show.
miss something on The Lars Larson Show? Check out posted interviews and podcasts at LarsLarson.com. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. Well, you know that there is a double standard in American justice, and there are lots and lots of examples of it, but I want to bring your attention to one in particular that involves a fairly serious crime for which this guy could have gone to federal prison for a long, long time because it involved the theft and then later the making public of tax records. But let me get into the details of that in a moment. If you want to join what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, and it's that way every day of the week, but on First Amendment Fridays, we open up the phone lines, and if you want to sound off, it's 866-HEY-LARS. And if you happen to be a naysayer, you disagree with my point of view, a long time ago, more than a quarter century ago, we said, hey, let's put the naysayers up first. If they got a good argument, they'll do well. If they have a flabby argument, they're not going to do very well at all. But you're welcome, and you'll go right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. You can also vote in our X poll, used to be called the Twitter poll. Find it on X, at Lars Larson Show. Brand new question every single day. So I'd ask you this. Do Americans endorse the idea that there should be a Department of Justice double standard, one in which... If you're a conservative and you cross the line of the law and you break the law, that you get very harsh punishment. And if you're on the left, if you're a political liberal, a member of the Democrat Party, or say the son of the president of the United States, Hunter Biden, you get almost no punishment at all. Now, I know that some of you have heard about some of these cases. Uh, one of them just this week, Peter Navarro, uh, worked in the Trump administration he was found in contempt of Congress. Now, there have been a bunch of people who've been found in contempt of Congress, uh, including Eric Holder, the former attorney general, Alejandro Mayorkas, um, and they get no punishment at all. What did Peter Navarro get? Four months in jail for contempt of Congress because the congressional investigation into January 6th, the uh, Capitol riot, uh, the, the Democrats engineered a committee. They said, we're going to have a committee. It's going to have half of it will be Democrats and the other half will be Republicans, but chosen by the Democrats. And if you say, well, that doesn't sound right. And you say, no, it's not right. In fact, Congress in its entire history up to the J6 committee had never, ever done that. They'd said Democrats can pick their members of the committee. Republicans can pick their own favorites to be on the committee. The people they think ask the best questions. But let me tell you about Charles Edward Littlejohn. Interesting name. He's a guy who's a criminal. And what did he do? He stole the confidential tax records of 7,500 wealthy Americans. And uh, Donald Trump was one of them. And you say, well, 7,500 instances, why that would add up to quite a jail sentence. I think it actually added up to hundreds of years. And what happened was he pleaded guilty to one single charge where there were 7,500 victims. And by the way, um, in this case, the DOJ actually went out and asked for permission uh, online. Uh, there were so many victims, they had to actually ask all of them by going online. And so you've got Donald Trump, who's on, on trial, for in four separate cases, one in New York, one in Georgia, one in Florida, one in Washington, D.C., and they seem to be pursuing every possible charge against him. 
You've also got the backdrop of a lot of the J6 defendants who are also uh, people who, in many cases, uh, went into a building, the you know the the Capitol building uh, illegally, and uh, and you think, well, you get a ticket for that, right? You pay a fine, you get yelled at by a judge. No, no, you get in some cases years in prison. Because the Democrats said, why, this was like Pearl Harbor. It was one of the most uh, most dangerous things that ever happened. Why members of Congress were in danger. None of that is actually true. Joe Biden himself told lies about January 6th. He said there were five cops murdered on January 6th. There were no cops murdered on January 6th or 7th or 8th. Uh, all of this. And this guy, Charles Edward Littlejohn. His attorneys went into court and they said, you've got to go easy on this because he leaked the information to reputable news organizations like the New York Times and ProPublica. Now, there have been times I've wanted to get a hold of somebody's tax records. I have never gotten a hold of them illegally. I would go through legal means. If you find somebody's taxes have been filed in a civil case at some point and it's part of the public record, you can do that. But now this guy, because he leaked to two notoriously liberal news organizations, the New York Times and ProPublica, they say, well, we're going to go easy on him. He's going to be sentenced. He hasn't been sentenced yet. But when he is sentenced, he is likely to get almost no punishment whatsoever. And by the way, the New York Times and ProPublica that received these stolen documents, I mean, these are two publications that will lecture you all day long and twice on Sunday about people who receive stolen information. Have they returned all of this tax information? The answer is no. And here's one of the things that uh, the defense attorneys, when they were pleading for you know some leniency for Mr. Little John, they said that a New York Times reporter had actually said, look, I want you to go out and get this information, quote, because a certain person will not disclose information that people absolutely need to see and have for decades. I appreciate that you share this concern. He was talking about Donald Trump. Now, think about that. I understand there were people who said, we want Donald Trump to release his tax returns. He said, look, I'm under audit by the IRS. When that's over and those issues are solved, I'll release my tax information. Even when they leaked his tax information, I know that there were people who thought, well, we're going to find out all kinds of things about President Trump when we see his taxes. Do you know, since they've been released, have you heard anybody talking about all the amazing stuff they found in Donald Trump's tax returns? If the answer is no, you'd be right, because they didn't find amazing stuff in his tax returns. They found out he's a very wealthy guy. He owns a lot of properties. He owns a lot of stuff and he makes a lot of money. And he pays his taxes. And if the IRS, especially under the Biden administration, if the IRS thought that they could bring charges against Donald Trump, do you think that the Joe Biden IRS would hesitate to do that? I mean, the IRS has been used as a political weapon by the likes of Hillary Clinton, by the likes of Barack Hussein Obama. It's been used as a weapon. If they thought they could go after Trump and say he cheated on his taxes, and in fact, I remember one time during the debates between Hillary Clinton and and, uh, and and Donald Trump, it was demanded of him by a reporter, why you used all these deductions to save taxes. Yep, said Donald Trump. And so did all of her donors. And she was in the U.S. Senate. She could have said, let's get rid of all these tax deductions. Do you know why Hillary didn't? Because she knew 
that her biggest supporters were using those tax deductions too. It's First Amendment Friday. Your calls are welcome. 866-439-5277. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Back in just a moment. The Lars Larson Show. Easy was abandoned by her. It's Friday, Friday. Yeah, Friday. Welcome to First Amendment Friday on the Lars Larson Show. Thank God it's Friday. Today, Lars puts you in the driver's seat. You talk about what you want to talk about. Government is the problem. No topic is off limits. We will make America great again. Call 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-HEY-LARS to speak your mind. Now, First Amendment Friday with Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. You know, I want to take the uh, moderator's privilege of being able to talk about recycling Now, I know that some of you are going to say, Lars, you're not one of those in favor of recycling. Well, I am. But I I want somebody to make it pencil out. And that applies whether we're talking about windmill blades or, or pop cans or anything else. And the problem is there are so many people on the green side of the aisle who want to say we've got to recycle and we have to mandate it. Well, if you could actually make it pencil out. You wouldn't have to force anybody to do it. The dollars alone, the green, would actually attract people to doing the green thing. And that's what I've been waiting for. And finally, uh, well, there are some people out there who actually have some business sense about them who are making this happen. And one of them is Terrell Garrett, who is the CEO and founder of a company called Greenway Recycling. Terrell, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Lars. So tell me this, uh, can you actually make some green out of recycling and make the thing pencil out so there's an actual bottom line? We've been doing it for 20 years. So what's the difference and between the way you do it and the way your competitors are doing it? And could, could we get a few more people to do that so the taxpayers don't have to uh, subsidize all this stuff? Well, we are always trying to be at the cutting edge um, with the most advanced machines and combination of great employees with those machines to get the highest recovery rate, it works for us. And I hope that when you know others by seeing this be successful will be incentivized to do the same. Is there a reason that the other companies that do, and I want you to describe before we get any further, I want, you, I want people to be able to visualize what you do. Uh, what what exactly are you re- recycling, and how is it that you make it turn a profit instead of turning a loss? Well, what we do, Lars, is we take the material, in, let's say a demolition project. Certain people come in and they take out the big, beautiful timbers and the other things that have easy market value. Yep. We take the stuff that nobody else knows what to do with, <laughs> and we find ways to keep it out of the landfill, either through um, boiler fuel or uh, recycling concrete into new aggregate, recycling metal, recycling cardboard, a number of items like that. I mean, because there are a lot lot of materials, when you see a demolition job, you see a whole bunch of crunched up concrete, 
They bring in an excavator. They bring in, uh, you know, one of the jackhammers on an excavator. And you bust all that stuff up, and you got all this twisted rebar and broken up concrete. How do you, how, how do you turn that into something useful and profitable? Well, you start with, between conveyors and machines, about 40 of them. And nine of the hardest working people you've ever seen in your life. And you combine it all, and you end up with great recovery rates. And, you know, you talk about the twisted and everything. A few months ago, Portland State tore down two five-story brick apartment buildings. Yeah. We were able to recover about 80% of that. Now, that's over um, 6 million pounds that we recovered out of that project. Is that mostly concrete? Are we talking about the six million pounds, or a portion of it is steel? Um, there was quite a bit of metal. Uh, we were hauling during that project thirty-five to forty pound uh, tons of metal a day out of our facility. Concrete, brick, rock, wood, um, copper wire, copper pipes, all sorts of things like that. I'm talking to uh, Terrell Garrett, who is the CEO and founder of Greenway Recycling, because one of the things that always confounds me is everybody and their brother will call me up and say, well, Lars, we can figure out how to recycle that thing. And they'll say, for example, and I think this may compare well to what you do, they'll say, you know, when those windmills finally wear out and it doesn't, you know, 15, 20 years, they're worn out, the blades right now are chopped up and sent to a landfill, although I keep hearing promises one day they'll figure out how to recycle the material into something else that makes sense. And they say, do you know that one of those generators has, you know, like twenty or $30,000 worth of copper in it? And I said, yeah, and I've seen estimates of $50,000 to extract the copper from the generator and then sell it, which doesn't pencil out. $20,000 worth of co copper, 50000 to get it out. You've just about wiped out your bottom line. So... So that's the mystery, isn't it? Is how do you how do you take say busted up concrete and cycle it so it can be aggregate for some other project in a way that actually makes economic sense? How do you do that? Well, our costs to take things to the landfill in this region are very high, and so anything we do that results in either an outright revenue or a lesser cost is beneficial. And if you have a very efficient plant like we have, then you're able to do those things. If you do not have an efficient plant, then no, it is not economic. It's just like you said, fifty spend fifty thousand to get twenty. Yeah, I graduated from work, high school, so I can even figure that 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 one is a loss. <laughs> so, so, so how do you? But but what is it that's different about your plant versus the other guys? Are the other guys just going cheap? Well, this is cheap equipment we can use. It produces a cheap result. And if you spend additional money, it can actually pencil out by turning that crushed up building material into something, either recoverable metals or concrete that can be turned into something else. Uh, is it just a matter that the folks in recycling, unlike you, don't want to spend the dough and take the time to buy the right kind of equipment to do the job and make it profitable? That seems really foolish. Well, I, I think that's part of it. But also, you know, in our case, we just finished a $7 million plant rebuild. You know, there is there are barriers to admission to this party. If you want to get the high recovery rates, you're going to have to take the risk and invest. But if you go to your banker and you say, look, I need to borrow 7 million bucks, 
but if you loan me seven million bucks, I can turn this much more profit and I'll have enough to pay you back and put some in my own pocket. That's generally how it should work. That's how it should work. But I started this project at the beginning of COVID, so it was a little bit more difficult than that. <laughs> <laughs> I would imagine. But although it might be a good time to have your plant shut down during COVID, right? You know what, Lars? We ran our plant all the way through because we believe in taking care of our customers and serving them. And shutting down your facility while you rebuild it is not taking care of your customers. No, probably cheaper just to build a brand new facility next to the old one while the old one still works. Did you do that? No, we built it right in the middle of the whole thing. Uh, it was challenging, to say the least. <laughs> And, uh, you know, we took, we had to do it the hard way because of COVID. We took our employees and trained them to be millwrights, to weld, to fit, to build, to cut. Um, it was quite an experience. You got to check out this example. It's Greenway Recycling. That's Greenway Recycling and Terrell Garrett, who is CEO and founder of Greenway Recycling. He says you can actually find a way to find the green in the green of recycling. Thanks so much uh, for the time, Terrell. Uh, back in a moment, y'all. Glad to get to your phone calls and emails at 866-HEY-LARS. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Here's Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails. First, if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line. If you want to send an email instead, talk at LarsLarson.com. And, of course, you can always vote in our poll on X. Uh, it used to be called Twitter. Now it's the X. So uh, we're calling it the poll on X. In any case, the question is there every day at Lars Larson Show. You can also find it on my website at LarsLarson.com. I'd ask you to remember that on Joe Biden's first day in office, he bragged that he would shut down the Keystone XL pipeline, that he would do everything he could to shut down America's energy industry, and he's done as much as he possibly can. I'd also remind you that a few months earlier, in late 2020, in the presidential debates, he was asked by a reporter, are you ready to get rid of America's fossil fuel business, even if you know it's going to cost 400,000 American jobs? He said, absolutely, I am. Now, consider all that. Because now it looks like Joe Biden's energy policies are going to cost him big time in the 2024 election. And Larry Barron's joins me now with a group called Power of the Future. Larry, welcome back to the program. Hey, Lars. So great to talk with you. Thank you, sir. So if anything I just said uh, you disagree with, please tell my audience why. And if not, tell me, tell me what do you think is going to happen now that Joe Biden's own energy policies are coming back to bite him in the backside in terms of electoral support? 
Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right in, in every possible way. You know, we have been for three years on this trial subscription of the Green New Deal, and the American voters have had enough of it. You know, and one of the, I mean, we know that just in his approval ratings, right? But another way that we know it is Hispanic Americans were a key supporter for Joe Biden in 2020. And so we looked at an energy state that is deep blue of New Mexico. And we said, how do you feel about Joe Biden now? And he is completely underwater with Hispanic Americans in the nation's most Hispanic per capita state and to the tune of double digit points. And so his support there has absolutely eroded. It is a key group and his embrace of the green agenda is a huge reason why, because we are paying more for everything. And is, is Biden now going to try to somehow shift his position or make people believe he shifted his position to correct that Uh, because whether he ends up as the candidate, there are plenty of theories that he's going to step aside at the last minute and they'll sneak in somebody like that, you know, like Gretchen Whitmer from Michigan or somebody else to take his place. But if he does, they're still going to own most of the, you know, the campaigning of Joe Biden. Is he going to try to convince Americans he's really not uh, anti-energy? Yeah, that's a a great question. And, and I, I, I'm going to sit on the fence about it because I'll tell you why. On one hand, we've seen a lot of that. We've seen that he's deflected. We say, you caused the highest gas prices ever. Well, no, that was Putin. And so we see that he's trying to deflect, which would lead me to believe, well, he's going to continue to do that. He's going to try to deceive us into not believing our own lying eyes, our own lying wallets. However, then we see like today where he just strikes a huge blow uh, near the third anniversary of the cancellation of the Keystone Pipeline. He cancels major natural gas projects. Uh, yeah, LNG. You know, you know, Larry. That, I wanted to bring. I wanted to bring that up next because because this one really belies any kind of common sense at all. Because if you say we want to be greener, but we also want the rest of the world to be greener, oh. Okay, well, America has, I think I looked it up a couple of days ago, 34 trillion cubic feet of proven natural gas reserves. So by all estimates, we've got about 100 years worth of natural gas. And you say, well, you have enough that you could sell to the rest of the world. Yeah, we could. And what would happen? In most cases, the people buying it would be replacing coal and oil with natural gas, which is tremendously cleaner than, than coal and oil. And you say, so that would green up the earth. Yeah, it would also make a lot of jobs and a lot of money in the United States and pay a lot of taxes to the government. I mean, good for yep. almost everybody. Yep. And what does the Biden administration do say? It would help the environment. It would create jobs. It would give us a foreign policy club of some kind to say, you don't have to buy from Putin or the Middle East. You can buy from us. And he says, let's cancel it. How does that make sense? Yeah, it's such a, a great point. And, and to buffer that, this is the guy who has begged for billions and billions of our grandchildren's money so that he could send it to Ukraine. He'll send our missiles to Ukraine, but I guess our natural gas is something he doesn't want to be sending there. And so it strengthens Vladimir Putin. But to answer your question more directly, it's because his environmental special interest friends have such a stranglehold on the White House that he has to abandon any shred of common sense. And oh, to help, the, you know, pad it, they'll also, you know, he's really desperate for campaign dollars from the environmental world coming up to get reelected. And so he has to keep them happy, which means abandoning common sense. And if you look at the states that are the biggest natural gas producers, what's number one? Number one is Texas. 
So how, why would Joe Biden want to get back at Texas right now? I can't think of a reason. Oh, except for they're highlighting probably what is the biggest failure of his presidency. And that's a distinction because there's lots of failures. Well, and then, and then there's generically that Texas is a red state. And then that, you know, also all the other oil producing states tend to be the red states. Uh, and, and the places we could produce oil and natural gas, like California, they've forbidden, you know, new drilling and all the rest of this. And, and, and I guess, Larry, Will the Republicans be capable of actually communicating this? I mean, I think Trump's done a good job of saying, I'm going to reach out to the auto workers because Joe wants to put them all out of business with EVs because EVs don't need near as much labor. But if he goes out and says, hey, when Joe says you can't have these LNG export facilities, who do you think was going to build those massive multi-billion dollar LNG export ports? Well, that would be unionized labor. And who would be operating the ports? Well, that would be unionized labor. So Joe Biden is sticking it to the unions all day long. He absolutely is. And, you know, we talked earlier about a blue state. Let me mention another one. Pennsylvania. Behind Texas, Pennsylvania is the biggest producer. Over 20 percent of the nation's natural gas comes from Pennsylvania. Where are Pennsylvania's two senators on today's decision? (laughs) Where are they're they're strangely quiet? Are they not? I mean, that is four hundred thousand jobs in just Pennsylvania alone. It is a massive boon to their economy. And Joe Biden just says, "I'm going to cut it off so that I can please the radical eco left." And so you see the devastating impacts not only in red states but in blue states. And that's why we're seeing the the support just erode everywhere because we're seeing the results of the Green New Deal. And, uh, you know, we've paid more out of the pocket in this Joe Biden Green New Deal tax in terms of looking at what's in our grocery cart, looking at what's in our gas tank, and looking at what we pay for everything. I almost wish every time, to your point, how do you communicate it? I'd say every time you get your electric bill, consider that something from a Joe Biden, I did that sticker. Every time you pay for groceries, get a Joe Biden, I did that sticker. Because you are paying more for all those things because Joe Biden did that. Well, and, and what's what's craziest about this is all these energy pieces go into every single thing. I mean, people think of it primarily as keeping the lights turned on. But th- those energy pieces, all of it, natural gas and oil, uh, all go in and electricity, which is mostly produced with fossil fuels right now, goes into producing food. You can't grow food, you can't harvest food, you can't process food, and you can't have food show up at your local grocery store without a whole bunch of energy, almost all of it natural gas and oil. And so these people want to cut our throats. And even if they believed, look, we're going to transition to, you know, sooner or later to some other form of energy. Okay, fine. I'm sure we will. We went from whale oil to oil out of the ground. We went from, you know, wood to other things. We've transitioned the entire history of humanity. We'll do it again. But if you force it all at all at once and you say, let's use the expensive stuff instead of the stuff that's reasonably priced, you still need those other fuels to keep you through the transition period. And Joe Biden apparently wants us to all I guess, freeze to death in the dark. That's Larry Behrens. He is with the group called Power of the Future. Larry, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Have a wonderful weekend. If you want to join what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, it's always right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line. We've always done it. We always will. If you want to send an email, talk at LarsLarson.com. You can also vote in our poll on X. 
It used to be called Twitter, now it's X. You'll find that at Lars Larson Show. And you can check out our Instagram feed. All the other social media we put up, every single interview on the program is free of charge. You'll find it at LarsLarson.com. The Lars Larson Show. Authors, experts, and a healthy dose of opinion. Find it at LarsLarson.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's First Amendment Friday. Glad to get you your phone calls and emails at 866-HEY-LARS. I also want to talk about uh, actually giving you an idea of what's really going on in the economy because the headlines you're hearing are, wow, look at this. Our economy is growing like a weed. And then you say, well, is it really the economy or is it the government that is growing? Because you realize a government grows a lot as well, and government has grown like crazy in the last uh, three years or so. Paul Winfrey joins me now, who's a former Donald Trump policy advisor, now heads up the new think tank, the Economic Policy Innovation Center, otherwise known as EPIC. Paul, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for having me. So what is growing? I mean, mo when most of us think of the economy, we think of uh, grocery stores, we think of manufacturing plants, we think of things that are in the economy. But now the government has become a substantial chunk of the economy. Am I right? A huge chunk of the economy. So the White House is touting these growth numbers uh, that just came out la uh, yesterday for uh, last year. And they're talking about how the economy grew just over 3% and about how that exceeds expectations from uh, from different economists across the political spectrum. Uh, but the reality is, if you break those numbers down, about a third of uh, the total growth that we saw annualized over the last year is just because of state, local, and federal spending. And most of it's actually state and local spending using federal dollars. So in other words, it makes it perhaps a little dip more difficult to identify because the federal government takes our money, takes off its cut, sends a bunch back to the states, tells the states to spend it, and the states go ahead and spend it. And that spending is what is driving, what, what 1% of the 3% of growth we saw last year? That's right. Yeah. So if, if you remember the Build Back Better bill, the ARPA, um, yep, that passed it, you know, early on in the Biden administration, that included $350 billion in state and local fiscal recovery funds that this administration has essentially been using as a campaign slush fund. And that money went to states and locals in the middle of 2022, but they haven't been spending it. And part of the reason that they have it, they hadn't been spending it is because uh, they were flush with cash and they didn't need it. Well, over the last year, the Biden White House has put a lot of pressure on them to get that money out the door. And so they've started to spend it, but there's still about $130 billion or so in unspent COVID money that's, that's sitting out there. But that's right. Um, the, the increase in state and local funding that we've seen that's contributed to those growth numbers, it all goes back to that pot of money uh, that was included in the, uh, in the ARPA, the Build Back Better bill. All right. Now, Paul, there are two things, I mean, two pieces of that that I don't, I, I don't understand. 
we're all used to emergencies that happen. There are floods, there are hurricanes, there are earthquakes, all kinds of calamities that can happen uh, in states and communities. And if you say to the federal government, look, we're in a tough spot, this just happened. And they say, okay, well, well, we'll give you some cash to help you through that. Most of COVID was not about things destroyed, like the hurricane, the flood, you know, the the earthquake. It was, it was look, you know, things have kind of shut down, mostly by choice by a lot of the states, where they said, we're going to shut things down. And, and they said, we have all these people with all these needs, unemployment, uh, food stamps, et cetera. You could understand them plugging money into those programs, you know, whether that's good policy or not is another discussion. But they're actually starting new programs. I mean, because when you talk about government growth, you're saying that when we see, you know, employment and hiring, they're actually creating new programs, not just propping up the old ones during a tough period of time. Am I right? Thousands of new programs. So there is a provision in that law that says that they can use this slush fund money for what's called revenue replacement. And the initial point was to allow them to replace revenue that was lost during the pandemic, but that never occurred. Uh, you know, state rainy day funds are higher than they've ever been. Uh, state revenues are, are higher than, uh, than they were before the pandemic, and they've grown every year. And so what states have done is that, especially the big blue states, as you can imagine, is that they have created new programs, and then they're using this COVID money to fund those new programs. So my my team went and actually looked at what some of these new things are, and and we found, I mean, just absolutely egregious, uh, you know, uses of, uh, of 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 these COVID money. So, for instance, about four hundred million dollars has gone to build swimming pools. About two hundred million dollars has been used to uh, put new irrigation systems into golf courses and buy golf carts. Um, in fact, a, a town outside of Chicago, Illinois, uh, used their money to install an industrial shower so that the um, they could attract the circus to town and be able to wash the uh, the elephants. What? So what? An elephant it, wash? Yeah. <laughs> an elephant wash. The COVID elephant wash. And and so you know, if you look at how the state and local government bureaucracies are growing, it, it's really quite interesting because you're seeing employment shoot up over the last year. So about 20% of job growth, uh, total job growth um, since ARPA was passed is, uh, is in state and local employment in a normal, regular, you know, not, you know, recession laden economy, we would expect that number to be around eight to to 10%. Um, And, and if you look at what kinds of employees they're hiring, it's, you know, teachers and in school uh, and folks in schools like you know, janitorial staff and, and, and lunchroom staff and, and those kind of folks, they're actually still at lower levels than they were before going into the pandemic. But administrative staff higher than it's ever been before. Um, and that's because they're hiring people to then up to uh, apply for more grants from the federal government in order to get more money to do more stuff. Well, and, and I know I'm hearing people out there saying, well, Lars, you wanted all those kids to catch up from the, t- you know, the, the learning they lost during the pandemic. I do. But is there any sign that the money shoveled out there is actually making that happen or likely to make it happen? No, I, I don't think like if you look at where school systems are right now relative to where they were before the pandemic, they're, they're still lower than they were. 
And uh, you know, part of that is because people have moved from public schools to private schools because yep. we saw how many public schools responded to the pandemic. But the other thing that's going on here is that that's not where the cash cow is, right? I mean, if, if you're a state and local government and the federal government has told you that they will you know, give you every grant under the sun for DEI purposes, then you're going to hire more people to apply for m- more grants that look like that rather than uh, hire people to teach your kids. And so they're just chasing the incentives that the Biden administration is laying out. Well, in fact, I saw one program the other day. It was a local program, but they were saying we're going to give this state's uh, welfare system four million dollars to hire more people, to hire more people or to sign up more people for welfare. And I thought if somebody's really in desperate economic straits and their income you know, qualifies them, they're going to go apply for welfare on their own. Why do you need to, to hire more people to go out and scour the landscape for anybody you can sign up for welfare and, and create an, another additional expense? That, that one doesn't make That's sense. In fact, I wish they'd hire people who'd say, I'm going to figure out how to get you a job so you can get off welfare. That's right. That's right. But that would be counterproductive, right? <laughs> because then, then the states and locals wouldn't get their money. So, so you know, they're, they're just following the incentives that have been laid out for them by by the federal government. Hey, here. Paul, before we run out of time, where can people find all this data? They're going to want it from the new organization, EPIC, the Economic Policy Innovation Center. Thanks so much. Uh, you can go to our website, www.epicforamerica.org, and you can find uh, the resources I talked about here and many, many more uh, there. Paul, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you. Talk to you soon. We'll, we'll get back to you in just a moment. If uh, you want to get uh, on the phone, it's First Amendment Friday, 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Naysayers go to the head of the line. Vote in our uh, X poll at Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show. Honestly provocative talk for America. Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a First Amendment Friday. Always glad to take your phone calls and your emails at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you happen to be one of our lovely, wonderful naysayers, we'll put you right to the head of the line. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you can always vote in our X poll. You'll find the X poll at Lars Larson Show. Now, I want to start with an old soundbite from 2007 of Senator Joe Biden. Ladies and gentlemen, no great country can say it is secure without being able to control its borders. Wow, I know that you're saying to yourself, that sounds a lot like Joe Biden, except it doesn't at all sound like anything that Joe Biden would say today. And you'd be absolutely right in both counts. Because that was Joe Biden in 2007. So we're only talking about, what, 17 years ago. Joe Biden, then a senator, said, ladies and gentlemen, no country can be a country without secure borders. And you say, hold on, 
That's the same Joe Biden who's now thrown our southern border wide open to such an extent that 10 million illegal aliens have come in. And he followed immediately after a president who managed to bring about the lowest level of illegal entry to the United States in modern American history. You'd be right in both cases. In fact, it was an entirely different Joe Biden because I think Joe Biden lives by one rule, and that is say to the public whatever works out best for the Biden crime family. So I'm going to tell you this. You all say, I mean, I have a number of people who say, you know, Lars, you never have anything good to say about President Biden. I'll tell you what, I will say something good about him today. Joe Biden has found a way to reunify America. And the simple way to do it, if you're president of the United States and everything is falling apart, you're in foreign wars, you've had a disastrous and deadly withdrawal from Afghanistan, you're not in good shape with anybody, not with Russia, not with Ukraine, not with China, not with anybody, your own economy is falling apart, groceries are crazy expensive, gas is crazy expensive, nobody can afford the interest rates to buy a house, what are you going to do to reunify America, Joe? stage an invasion of the country and then get into a major fight with the state of Texas, which Joe Biden is in a fight with the state of Texas right now. And he's thrown down the gauntlet. He said, within 24 hours, you have to do this, Texas. You got to get out of the way so our border patrol can go into their concierge mode and start welcoming illegal aliens again. And you know what Texas did? They gave the uh, I guess the governmental equivalent of the big middle finger to Joe Biden. They said, no, we're not going to do it. And 25 other states in America have also stood up and said, Joe, we stand with Texas, not with you. So in a lot of ways, Joe Biden has unified a tremendous number of Americans. But I want to remind you of some of the things that Joe Biden used to say about what he would do about illegal aliens, about borders, about security, about all of those things. First of all, he said, we're going to go after the employers who use these illegal aliens. Take a listen. Can you scare an employer in this country, whether he's an agricultural worker or a housewife, into not hiring an illegal because the punishment's so high that if you get caught, yes. it's a huge embarrassment to your family, and you may just hit a, get hit with a fine that'll kill you. Yeah, absolutely, you, you can, can do and that's what we should do. Well, I think we should do that. I think we should do that. Well, what's he doing now? He's inviting people in most of whom, millions of whom, have no right to work in this country at all, which means there are really two possibilities. If you have 10 million people come in and you have about 500,000 of them who've been given work permits for no good reason, that Joe, Joe Biden did that, and then the other 9.5 million have no way to make a living, you have two choices. Either hand them welfare and food stamps and subsidized housing and health care or let them work illegally. So Joe Biden's not going to do that. And then take a listen to this. This is from 2006. You find this really instructive when you look at what this guy had to say about illegal aliens in 2006 about the Democrat position. The Democratic position also recognized you got 11 million alien, uh, illegal aliens here. They have to have a way to earn their way into the deal. This is an amnesty. They're required to take 11 years' worth. They pay a fine. they got to learn to speak English. they got to pass um, oh, testers. Part. Yeah. Now, do you hear Joe Biden talking about any requirements to come into America right now? I think the only requirement they want is all the illegal aliens have to sign up to vote and then take a listen one more soundbite i want to share with you about his position in 2007 just 17 years ago about controlling the border i would radically ramp up 
the number of border security guards we have, the use of electronic surveillance material we have to guard the border, and a number of what they call virtual fences. They're not literally fences. Virtual fences from aerostat balloons on to where we, whereby we can control the border. Much, much better. Much, much better. And then what happens when Texas actually puts up concertina wire, razor wire on the border? Joe Biden uh, drags them into the Supreme Court to demand the right to dismantle the very security that Texas put up because Joe Biden refused to put it up. This guy is a liar all day long and twice on Sunday. Let's go to Daryl. Hey, Daryl, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? I'd like to say that I think it's time that Texas secede from the Union and go back to being its own country. Why? And I might sell my house and move down there myself. No, but why would you want them to secede instead of standing strong for the rest of America, which is they're the border right now. They're a big chunk of the border right now with Mexico, and they're doing the job that we asked Joe Biden to do that Joe Biden refused to do. So why would you want them to stop being part of America? Because the Democrats are going to cheat. They're going to stay in power forever, and America's going downhill. So Texas helps us out by leaving the United States because the Democrats have driven things so far into the ditch that they're not going to, you know, that they're going to lose this fall. I mean, I can't imagine, Daryl, any there are even Democrats today who are saying, I can't vote for this. I mean, there are angry Democrats in Chicago right now who are proud to be Democrats, but they say our own party has dumped all these illegals on us and is making our life worse. Our own party has refused to control crime in the country and made our lives worse. Our own, you know, party has made groceries more expensive, gas more expensive, rent more expensive. Daryl, the way to win that fight is not to run away from the fight, nor does Texas have the legal authority. I know there are people on the Internet who, who have this myth going that Texas has the legal authority to secede from the union. Well, I suppose in some ways, almost anybody has the ability to secede, but it would be a fight. But the Civil War settled that. States do not have the authority on their own, not even Texas, to be able to say, we're going to secede from the Union. And why you'd want them to quit the fight when it appears to me that they're actually winning the fight. Daryl, that one doesn't make sense to me, but I appreciate the call all the same. 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. You can uh, vote in our poll on X. You'll find that at Lars Larson Show. You can tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show and check out my Instagram feed as well. The Lars Larson Show.